You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hey there, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Hold That Thought. I'm Rebecca King, and today I'm talking to David Schumann, a fiction writer and the director of the creative writing program here at Washington University in St. Louis. He recently gave a lecture on the topic of writing and the void, a topic he says that has fascinated him for some time. So what does he mean by the void? Well, he'll share a little bit of his lecture first to explain. The lecture stems from an essay that I read by Anne Carson called Variations on the Right to Remain Silent, which um, was an essay that was primarily dealing with translation of texts, but I thought got into some really interesting ideas just about um, what is behind the language and the words that we, that we need to use to describe things. The essay is about the difficulty in translating a text when the translator runs into what Carson calls the two kinds of silence. The first silence is physical, say when you've only got a partial text because it's ancient and written on papyrus and half of it has crumbled away. The second one, the one that interests me here, is what she calls metaphysical silence, when a word stops itself and is somehow untranslatable not simply because there isn't an English word for it, but because the word describes something that isn't meant to be understood or that can't be. One of the examples she gives is in the Odyssey, when Odysseus is advised to use a certain plant to combat a witch's spell. The plant is called moly, M-O-L-Y, and the word doesn't mean anything or can't mean anything in any human language because it's written in what Homer calls the language of the gods. Carson goes on to describe the trial and inquisition of Joan of Arc, where judges asked her about the nature of the voices that had led her into battle, and she was unable to describe them in human terms. In what language do the voices speak to you, the judges asked, and Joan answered, better language than yours. That was the part that really resonated for me, because although I'm not myself a religious or spiritual person, I believe that all truly great works of art, and plenty that aren't so great, are hinges or portals into a metaphysical space I like to call the void. The void is is something that David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos, talks about when he says, quote, once long ago he glimpsed something fleeting that he could never quite pin down, could never quite hold on to, and could never forget. The void contains everything that can't or won't be known. It's where all the unanswered questions in the world and the universe reside. It's the thing behind the thing, behind the thing, behind the ad infinitum, behind the curtain. It's there when you read Kafka or stare at a Rothko or lose yourself in the frenzy of Miles Davis and his band on Live at the Fillmore. There's no reason to argue here about whether or not this space actually exists or whether it's brought on by the release of certain chemicals in our brains. After all, I can still be afraid of ghosts even if I don't believe in them. There are strategies that, uh, that we as writers can use to create the kinds of portals I'm referring to inside our work. This has everything to do with creating and then allowing conversation between 
things on a frequency we can't actually hear or understand. A sort of ineffability dog whistle, if you will, or to use Joan's expression, in better language than ours. I'll use an example here of the Joseph Cornell box. Without undermining Cornell's genius or craft or sense of balance and color and composition, I believe it's still fair to say there's a randomness to his assemblages, a non-sequitorian impulse to his practice. You look at the boxes and you can't tell any story in human terms, although a nonsensical or dream narrative might emerge. But I would say that it's the way these objects relate, or where their resonance overlaps as in a Venn diagram, that this metaphysical frequency buzzes, creating a tiny hole in the fabric of the perceived world. So what I'm talking about here is a certain kind of non-sense, or even just plain nonsense, along with a surrender of intention and even of artistic authorial ownership as a strategy for bringing readers closer to the edge of this void. I'm far from the first to recommend this practice. The romantics and the surrealists certainly got to this idea before I did. And some of you might know this Donald Bartlemy chestnut, that the aim of literature is the creation of, quote, a strange object covered with fur, unquote. He himself was most likely referring to Merritt Oppenheim's famous object from the first surrealist exhibition dedicated to objects in 1936. Donald Bartlemy's brother, the writer Frederick Bartlemy, also seems to have glimpsed this void, or the non-sense, when he wrote his famous 39 Steps of Fiction Writing, the second step of which is, don't let it make too much sense. Don't let it make too much sense is something that I find myself often going back to with students who, I think, want to create a kind of psychological realism out of making sense of things. Psychological realism being the sort of dominant mode I think that students want to write in. They want to create this sort of verisimilitude, you know, with their work. They want to make a real thing, and they think that means that they have to follow every character's every impulse to the nth degree, when in fact, like, that's a way to create something that feels rather false. As David Schumann indicated at the beginning by invoking artists like Joseph Cornell and Merritt Oppenheim, language and writing are not the only forms of expression that hint at or open into this void. I look at a lot of artists who I think are playing with this idea, you know, in a way that writers maybe are not always thinking about. So like Mirandi is somebody who's putting objects next to each other and there's a narrative there. It's a narrative about space and light. It's not a narrative necessarily about two characters interacting, but it's still a narrative and I think that often that narrative has access to this thing that I refer to as the void or you could call the ineffable. Here in our interview, Professor Schumann picked up a copy of Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts to help him further describe the void. I'm going to search for this quote here because it's from The Argonauts, and I was reading it the other day, and she she mentions this right on the first page, and I really like this too. She says, Before we met, I had spent a lifetime devoted to Wittgenstein's idea that the inexpressible is contained inexpressibly in the expressed. And there again, I think, is another reference to this idea that 
language is a way to access something that's in fact inaccessible, but we keep trying as artists. I think that's always what we're attempting to do is to sort of get at this thing that can't really be understood or expressed. Within the literary world, Schumann says that flash fiction or microfiction, short stories that are under a thousand words, are a great example of how literature can evoke the void. I'm drawn to microfiction as a form and the writers who write microfiction as a form because its tininess sort of always poises it at the edge of something vast, or at least the best of these stories, I think, are always gestures into something much, much larger than themselves. And so Kim Chin-Ki is a writer who I really enjoy reading just because I think she so effectively not only gestures into the larger narratives and histories of her characters, but just with the tininess of the actual physical, you know, objectness of the stories being so small, you see them poised at the edge of something large and vast. For those of you unfamiliar with microfiction's potential power, consider Ernest Hemingway's famous six-word story. It reads simply, For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Though never explicitly stated, this story hints at a much larger, much more tragic story, poising it, as Schumann said, at the edge of something bigger. So how do we as writers or artists poise our work against this great unknown? Can we do so intentionally? Does writing craft get us there? David Schumann says no. And he shares this opinion with other writers who have visited campus. When I started reading fiction and started trying to understand how fiction worked, it was all about looking at what the characters were doing, how they were thinking, how you could make them real on the page, how you could make them believable and sympathetic, how you could advance a plot. And all of that, obviously, is really important, and that stuff is craft. Joy Williams was here and gave a talk about craft in which she seemed pretty skeptical. She followed that up with a, another essay where I think she was speaking specifically about languages and crafts inability to do what art really needs to or wants to do. So it's the only medium we have, at least as writers. Every medium is ineffective at doing this. It's all, in a way, a kind of failure, which I also really like the idea of. When Renee Gladman was here recently, she spoke about the endings of her pieces and these pieces that she referred to as fiction essays or essay fictions. And she talked about the endings of these as being failures. And I like that idea because I think that to me, a, a failure is a sort of a gesture into what can't be understood or known, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to do those things. To go back to that amazing Joan of Arc thing. They keep asking her what these voices sound like, and she keeps telling them, you know, these sort of ridiculous answers that don't make any sense, that are grammatically flawed, that just sort of don't avoid the question. They just speak to the utter ineffectiveness of the question or the answer when it comes to talking about what God's voice sounds like. And I think for me, that's the essence of this. Many thanks to David Schumann, author and director of the Creative Writing Program here at Washington University in St. Louis, 
for taking the time to wrestle with the inexpressible and meditate with us about writing, art, and the void. And thanks to all of you, too, for tuning in to Hold That Thought. Do you want to stay inspired this summer? You can find more podcasts on the craft of writing and many other topics on our website at holdthatthought.wustl.edu.